Good morning. I am really glad to be here today. I am always so thrilled to be in God's Word, but especially with all of you this morning. Some of you haven't seen in a little while. Uh, Some of you uh, have been sick and are back with us. We're very glad you're healthy and back among the land of the living. And uh, some of you visiting, it's just so nice to see people, isn't it? You know, I've actually restructured the, uh, the service a little bit in that we've been giving a little bit more time for fellowship, especially on Wednesday evenings. I've been shortening the messages and allowing more time for fellowship because the Lord has shown me we need that, obviously, but right now, maybe just as much, if not more, than the Word. I really think that we need both. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to continue to give you guys that opportunity to fellowship. We're not chasing anybody out of here. Um, while we don't have an official coffee hour, you know, we, we encourage you, if you want to get a cup of coffee or tea, that's fine. And just, you know what? Listen, we're all adults here, right? You know, you know how to keep yourself separate. You know how to play the game, I call it, do what you got to do. But you need to be in fellowship. I need to be in fellowship. We need to be in fellowship. It's just as important as praise and worship. It's just as important as prayer and the study of God's word and service to one another. It's what makes the church the church. If you take the fellowship out of it, it's like, ever try to make pancakes without uh, flour? It won't happen, right? There are some crazy recipes like flourless pancakes. I wouldn't advise you try that. So we want to make sure we make our services open and available. Some people are more comfortable. Some people are less comfortable. But we want everyone here to be comfortable in the way that they feel comfortable worshiping. So that's why we ask you to separate a little bit whatever you feel comfortable with. We don't have police running up and down the aisles uh, with, you know, a measuring tape. You're adults, okay? Now, this morning, we're going to open up in God's Word in Psalm 139. I'm very excited. I I woke up this morning. I went to bed early. It was a tough week, busy week. Um, I went to bed early. Early for me is like 1030. And so, of course, I woke up at 330. um, And, you know, got up, checked my email, you know, just uh, got some things going on in my life, wanted to make sure everybody was okay. And um, just for a little while, before I went back to sleep, I started to pray. And I, I really, I, I probably shouldn't have done that because the Lord started to show me things. And I was up for about a half hour just sort of thinking about the things I wanted to share today in, in, the, in the Word. I had reviewed my notes before I went to bed. And I realized something. I realized that um, we really need to remember who God is. Amen. We're going to talk some truth today because the world is full of lies. On every issue, you can count on the world lying to you. So I promise you one thing today. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to promise you something else. You may not always like it. The truth is sometimes hard to hear. And so the world has manipulated the truth and outright lied to us, sometimes telling us the things we want to hear, sometimes telling us the things that they want us to hear. But here is what we're going to do today. We're going to open up God's word and we're going to see, as Jesus said, thy word is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He is truth. The word is truth. And so we're going to speak truth to lies. You know, you hear this phrase, we speak truth to power. You know what? We speak a powerful truth. So today, if it's okay, I want to preach a little bit. I want to talk to you about the things that God is showing me, but I want to share God's word. So let's pray this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I'm so grateful. I'm excited this morning to be in your word. As David said, glad when I found out I was coming here. So I am just so excited and and thrilled to know that we can hear from you. And as we look at Psalm 139, as David shares his heart, may you share your heart with us, and may we surrender our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I already warned one, I might get a little loud today. Because I'm excited. I'm excited about the things that this psalm tells us. David is declaring some very important truths, three in particular, and then, finally, his response to those truths. And the truths are this. That our God is all-knowing. Can you say all-knowing? Our God is ever-present. Can you say ever-present? And our God is all-powerful. All-powerful. He's the creator God. He's all of those things. And when you consider who he is, you don't worry about anything. You're basically Bobby McFerrin. 
You don't start to worry at all because you realize that God truly is all of those things, all-knowing, knows all things, ever-present, everywhere you could possibly be in the universe, and then some, and all-powerful, that is, he has all power to do all things, and he's the creator. Now, if that's the definition of who our God is, don't worry. Be happy. You see, as we come to this place today, as to, to, the, to the throne of God, as we come before the throne of God, as Pastor Russ and the worship team led us into the presence of God, we're looking at who God is today. It can only have one effect. You leave here encouraged and ready to preach some truth. This psalm is provided to the director of music for use in the worship services of the temple. Not all the psalms say that. This psalm does, which means this is in particular a song of worship. It is an intensely personal psalm that uses 48 first-person and 28 second-person pronouns in just 24 verses. Very personal. Very personal. You see, David here is declaring that the Lord knows everything about him, and the Lord knows everything about you. We read in verses 1 through 4, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You see, that description makes it clear. He is the all-knowing God. David declares the Lord knows everything about him. The Lord has searched his heart and his mind. He knows him completely. The Lord knows his every action, even his thoughts, even before he thinks them. The Lord knows in advance exactly what he will do on any given day. And the Lord knows what he's about to say even before he thinks to speak. Now that's true of David. That's true of you. The Lord knows everything about you. Everything. Everything. And David makes that clear when he says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You see my thoughts coming into my head before I receive them. You know when I'm going to sit before I say, you know, maybe I'll sit down. You know that I'm going to get up before I say, you know what, I'm going to get up. You discern, that is, he knows in advance when I'm going to go out, when I'm going to lie down. He's familiar with my ways in advance before I even do anything. And perhaps most importantly, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. Now, why is that important? Because we serve an all-knowing God, amen? All-knowing. That means he knows all things. He knows us completely. He knows everything. And the Lord is in complete control of our lives. Look what David says about this. David declares that the Lord is in complete control of his life in verses 5 through 6. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, that may not come out loud and clear in the NIV, but what he's saying when he says, you hem me in, the idea is is the Lord directs his life, hems him in, that is, directs his life. I I always think, for whatever reason, I always think about when they're moving cattle, and they create these these, these fencings to to move the cattle onto cattle cars, or to move the cattle into into a different part of the field, or a different part of the the farm. They create these, these... alleys, if you will, with fencing so that the cattle can only go in one direction. We hem them in. That's what God does for us. Amen? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a wonderful thought that he creates a sort of situation where you really can't go anywhere but where God has called you to go? That's not to say you can't resist him. That's, you, can't tr- you, know, you can't say you can't climb the fence. Of course you can. But as Isaiah said, you, whether you turn to the right to the, or to the left, you'll, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. God hems us in. That's what that word means. That's what that phrase means. The Lord directs our lives like he directed David's life, his past, his future, his present, by placing him exactly where he's called him to be. That's a very comforting thought, isn't it? You're hemmed in. And he is overwhelmed, as you are probably, by the 
Lord's knowledge about him and his control over him when he says in verse 6, as we've read already, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's beyond my ability to even consider it. It's too lofty for me to attain. It's it's higher than my thoughts. There's just no way I can even comprehend how you could be in control of me and all things, the universe and everything in it. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, it doesn't seem like it right now. And that's because you're trying to figure out what God is up to. You're always going to come up short when you do that because these things are too wonderful, too lofty for you to figure out, for me to figure out. You know, I have to laugh, and, and I've been doing this a little while, a little over 30 years, and I've heard pastors spend all their time and energy trying to figure out what God is doing. They call them prophecy updates or prophecy conferences. And then that would be okay if they looked at the definition of prophecy. First of all, the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. So it really should be about Jesus. And the other thing is, Jesus said, I've told you these things before they happen, so when they happen, you'll believe. See, the purpose of prophecy is God tells you ahead of time what's going to happen, then it happens and you think, oh, I believe in God. It's, it's not about writing books and trying to figure out the future, or writing books about the past and saying, I knew this, I just didn't publish it. You see, the problem today is that we are thinking that we can somehow figure out God. You can't figure out God. I can't figure out God. I can't even figure out my own life half the time. That's why I come to God. So once you approach God in that way, the way that David, just accepting that God has hemmed you in, that God's in control, the next thing that happens is you really just start to worship God for who he is. And that's what happened in David's life. So he's the all-knowing God, but as I've said already, he's not only the all-knowing God, he's the ever-present God. And David says it this way in verses 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, that is in Sheol, that is Hades or hell, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The gist of that is this, the Lord is always present with him. And the Lord is always and ever present with us. Amen? So once we understand that, like we understand that God is all-knowing, it's a great comfort. He's always with us. David cannot escape the Spirit of the Lord. He can't flee from his presence, and neither can you. Here David acknowledges that the Lord is in the heavens. I don't think we have a problem with that. First of all, let me explain that there are at least three heavens talked about in the Scriptures. There's the heaven. You look up into the sky. We call it the atmosphere. It's what exists around our planet. The sky. It's it's blue during the day generally, sometimes gray. And at night, it's dark. You really can't see anything but the stars, which are in what we call the second heavens. If you will, space. The final frontier. So you see, as we look at the sky, we realize that's the first heaven. Then we have space. That's the universe. That's the second heavens. And we imagine God is out there somewhere near Alpha Centauri, but that's not true either because there's a third heaven, which is a dimension. It's, it's sort of outside this physical universe. Very, very smart people will tell us that there are ten dimensions, four that are perceivable, six that are curled into space. I don't really understand all that. It's too wonderful for me. But I know this. I know that God is out there, but he's here as well. See, yes, God dwells in heaven. His throne is in heaven. But what this psalm makes clear is he is able to be all places at all times. And I think we can accept that he's in the heavens, uh, the universe, uh, uh, everywhere, the heavens and the earth. And then we know he's in that place called heaven, which is the third heaven. Paul actually refers to it in that way. That was a Greek way of thinking. I believe it was in 2 Corinthians. And when when we think about the third heaven... That's the place of God. But don't think of God as there and kind of looking here. He's with us where two or three are gathered. He's in our midst. Amen. So that's true. But this is the part that shocks a few people. You can't flee from his presence. There's nowhere you can go to get away from him, thank God. But here's the thing. He's the Lord of the heavens, but he's also in the depths of hell. What? See, I always imagined Hades, or as the Hebrews call it, Sheol, which, by the way, is not Gehenna or hell, the the lake of fire. Let's be clear. 
The scripture talks about a number of different dimensions in eternity. The lake of fire is the ultimate destination of hell itself, or Hades. So you can say hell and kind of refer to either or both, but let's say Gehenna, the lake of fire, Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. Richie was just asking me today, what happened to Moses and David when they died? Well, they went to this place called Hades or Sheol. David said, you will not leave my soul in Sheol or Hades. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. You will not leave my soul there. You will not abandon me. And of course, we know that when Christ died, he descended into the heart of the earth. They call it the heart of the earth. It's a classical way of referring to this dimension known as Sheol or Hades. And he rose on the third day and led captivity in his train. Amen. He, he rescued or, or freed the captives, those that were waiting for Messiah to come. And they entered into heaven. And in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, it says some of the holy men were seen around Jerusalem that had died. So we know that Hades has been emptied out of those that were waiting for Messiah, a place called Abraham's bosom by Jesus in Luke's gospel. But the important point here this morning is this, that Jesus is there as well. God is there as well. See, you, you can't, there isn't a place that you can go where God is not there. See, I always thought of hell as the place where the devil is and God's never been there. But that's not true. We always imagine hell as a place with a throne and the devil is sitting on it. I'm going to suggest to you, the devil's never been there. What, what good would he do there? It's too late for anybody that's still there. And anybody that was in Abraham's bosom was waiting for Messiah. So I don't see why he would go there. And I imagine he, he doesn't even have access. Actually, I know where the devil is. You know what the scripture tells me? He's at the throne of God accusing the brethren day and night. The liar that he is. That's what the scripture tells us. But God is in all things. There's no place you can go where he is. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The uh, obvious answer, nowhere. There's no place you can go. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when we see those who took the number of the beast, the mark of the beast, and rejected God and became God's enemies, we're told that they're tortured in the presence of the holy angels for all eternity. What does that mean? That means that even the lake of fire is a place where God exists eternally. You know what that is? That's God's wrath. See, the lake of fire, hell, if you will, for all eternity, isn't a place where God isn't. It's just a place where grace isn't. God's grace isn't. God's wrath is. But still, God inhabits all things. So I want your perception of God to be appropriate and scriptural in that he's ever-present. There's no place you can go, and that's what this scripture tells us. A very different experience of God in eternity if you reject his son, Jesus Christ. One of God's wrath for all eternity. And as good as his grace is, as wonderful as his precious love is, imagine how awful and terrible and horrible the lake of fire is when you abide in God's wrath forever. And only you can send yourself there by rejecting him. Well, here's what the scripture tells us about heaven, about hell or Hades. But he also realizes, David, realizes that there is nowhere on earth he can go where the Lord won't guide and protect him. Now, I love the poetry of the Psalms. And I want to point out that when he says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, it's a very poetic way of saying, I can go to the extreme east. The wings of the dawn, the sun rises in the east. So the wings of the dawn are as far as you can go east. So he's saying, if I go as far east as I can go, or if I settle on the far side of the sea. Now the sun would set in the west and it would set over the sea. In this case, the Mediterranean Sea from David's perspective. But if I settle on the far side of the sea or the extreme west, or I go to the east, west, it doesn't matter. Here's what we learn. Even there, your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast or protect me. So there's no place on earth that you can go, east or west, north or south, where God isn't going to protect you. If you love him and have a relationship with him, certainly, there's no place you can go that God won't guide and protect you. Now, is anyone comforted? Say amen. I'm comforted because that means there's nowhere you can go. Even if you found yourself in a prison cell in Iran, God would be with you. If you found yourself on a 
desert island for several years, God would be there with you. There's simply no place. If you found yourself quarantined for nine months in your house, I hope you haven't been in your house for nine months if you're listening online. But if you have, even there, God is with you. Amen? He'll guide you. He'll protect you. And then David declares that the Lord always sees him. And that's another comforting thought. Not only is God with us, but he sees us. Look at verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I'm sure you've seen those night vision goggles. Or at least you've seen them on TV where people put them on and then the screen goes green. I don't know that I've... Have I ever looked? I don't think I've ever looked through them. They're pretty expensive things to own. Military sometimes has them, especially special forces. But it allows you to see at night as if it was daytime. It's pretty impressive. Some neat tech. But God doesn't need those goggles. He doesn't need night vision. He sees through the darkness. That's the point here. David can't be hidden from the Lord, nor, nor can he be lost in earthly darkness because he realizes that there is no darkness that it can obscure him from the eyes of the Lord. Can I hear an amen? That's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for us. God always sees us. He's always with us. He always sees us. So we know God is all-knowing. We know God is ever-present. And the fancy words would, of course, be like omniscient you know, or omnipresent. And now we get to the third, and it's this, that God is all-powerful or omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's the creator. Only the creator could be all-powerful, and only an all-powerful creator could have done what we see around us, created us and all the things in our universe, in our world. And so David declares that the Lord created him. Now I want you to stop and think about that, because our world is lying to you. Science, so-called, falsely called, is lying to you tells you that you sort of just, just kind of happened. If you just kind of happened, then I guess it's no big deal to abort you before you're born. If you just kind of happened, then I guess it's no big deal. If you just sort of evolved from single-celled organisms and ultimately became a monkey and then eventually became a human being, you realize what a ridiculous lie that is? So you're going to find out today, we'll talk about this at the end of our service, you've been lied to a lot. And we know who lies. We know whose language that is. When we hear those lies, it's important that we expose them for what they are and preach the truth. See, David declares, the Lord created him. When someone says, where did you come from? You say, the Lord created me. Little kids will say, I came from my mommy's tummy. And that's true, but here's the thing. The Lord created you in your mommy's tummy. You see, that's the thing. Once we recognize the value of human life as being created by God, uniquely created by God, and not just happen to happen in some strange way because of happenstance or something else. Listen, you've been lied to, and I'm here to tell you the truth. God created you. God created you. He formed you. And David knows that. And because he knows that truth, he understands God is the all-powerful creator. He understands if God created him, God can sustain him. God can protect him. God can guide him. God values him and cares about him. The reason in our world today we don't value human life is because we don't recognize we're made in the image of God. Once you accept that you're made in the image of God by God, then even the worst criminal has value in God's eyes. Because he or she is made in the image of God. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. I'm just saying they are human beings and have value. But if you look at life as just sort of happening, it's just sort of an occurrence that took place, then the problem there is simple. You don't have the truth and therefore you respond to a lie and you don't value people. Even when those people haven't even been completely formed and haven't even been born yet. You look at them as a fetus, or you look at them as something other than a human life. So once you embrace the truth that David's about to share with us, that changes everything. I don't believe you can be a true Bible-believing Christian. This is going to be controversial, but I don't care. 
I don't believe that you can be a child of God, a true Bible-believing Christian. Know this truth in God's Word. Maybe you don't know it yet, but now you do. Know this truth and still think that abortion isn't murder. You can sit here and tell me there may be a time where it's appropriate. I don't agree. But you can't tell me it's not murder. You can say there's an appropriate time for murder. You can say that. I can disagree with you. But you can't tell me it's not murder. And how do I know that? Look what David says here in verses 13 through 16. This is, this is intense. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be sadly, sadly, tragically, horrifically. Many of those days are shortened when people choose to murder an unborn child. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I think we understand. I hope we understand. And listen, I want to compassionately and lovingly say that there are many people who have experienced or consented to that practice, and I'm not here to make you feel guilty or bad about yourself. God is a forgiving God, but we have to confess our sins. We have to be honest about what we do and what we've done. And you can weep and you can cry, and God will love you and forgive you and embrace you and comfort you, but not until you admit what you've done. That has to happen. It does. And I know that's painful, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you and for your pain. And that goes to the men who consented and to the women who consented to that practice of institutionalized murder, which is what it is. But I'm not saying that to make you feel bad or to hurt you. I'm telling you this so you can receive God's forgiveness and love. You have to speak the truth, a powerful truth. You have to, if you're going to receive healing and forgiveness. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yes, some sins in this life have tragic consequences, more so than others, but all of them separate you from God. So confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and purify you of all unrighteousness. All means even that. Even that. But you've got to tell the truth. You've got to tell the truth. You see, David declares the Lord created him. The Lord created his immortal soul and formed his physical body within his mother's womb. Now, there's two aspects to creation here that you need to consider. You have a soul. And you have a body. And both were created by God. Now, again, these things are too wonderful for me. They're beyond my pay grade. But what I do know is what the scripture says. Look at verse 13. You created my inmost being. My inmost being. That's my soul. That's your soul. That's David's soul. You created my inmost being. And now we go on. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's my body. Our bodies are fashioned within the womb. But our inmost being was created by God. God creates our souls. Unborn children have souls the moment they're conceived. Now, maybe that soul pre-exists that conception. I don't know. But I know at the very minimum, once that body begins to form, once, when life begins, and there's no question about that either, at that moment, that child, unformed, is a living soul has a living soul, and that soul is created by God. And remember, we're created in the image of God, which means just as God is spirit, we're spirit. We have a soul. Then we receive a body, which forms over a period of roughly nine months. But that living human being has a soul. It's not about when the heartbeat begins. That's just the heart. That's just some organ that pumps blood through the body. It's about when the soul is created and that happens when life begins at conception. As, as I said, maybe even before that. I don't know. But I know at least, at least at the moment, you can possibly 
murder a child in the womb. At that moment, I know this. That child has a soul. Can I hear an amen? Okay. Clearly, I'm not running for office. So, you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Then he goes on to say, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made your works, and we are among his works, are wonderful, I know that full well. He praises the Lord, for he, the Lord, is in complete and total control. And because he's in complete and total control, David is in complete and total awe of the wonderful works of his creation. And that's what this psalm is all about. This includes the creative genius of the human body. Have you ever watched one of those shows when they just analyze, let's say, the circulatory system or the lymphatic system? Have you ever just watched anything or studied any aspect of human anatomy and consider how the body works? When our bodies don't work, we appreciate when they're not working properly, we appreciate when they work properly. When you have a hard time breathing, as many have experienced this last year, you, you love the fact that your body generally works properly if you take care of it. The body is an amazing, amazing creation. And I could talk about that all day, but it's just too wonderful for me anyway. It also includes all of creation. I mean, God's creative genius is evident in the creation of all life, not just the human body, but all life. And because he created all things... All things are designed to support and sustain earthly life. Now, I read something interesting this week. And, it, and, it, and it, it made me chuckle. Because they sent this probe with a telescope out into the outer rim of our solar system near Pluto. And what they were doing for many years with the Hubble telescope, which is much closer to our planet, uh, they were using that telescope, and they were looking out into the galaxies, into the universe, and they, they could only see a certain number of galaxies, even from the Hubble telescope. And they estimated how many they were. And they said, well, this is what we can see, and based on what we can see, we estimate we're only seeing a small percentage of what actually is. And so they came up with a ridiculous estimate. I can't even remember. There were trillions. It was a ridiculous estimate. Trillions of galaxies, and maybe there are, but not because they saw them, but because they guessed. But they were lying to you. How do I know that? Because they released an article this week that said now that they moved a telescope far enough out into space to kind of bridge the distance between the Hubble and this new telescope, they expected to see more of those trillions of galaxies. You know what they found? They found that there might be twice as many as they could see, based on the estimates, because they have more data now, that maybe there's only billions of galaxies. Do I believe them? I don't know. I don't think they know. But now they've come to this wonderful conclusion, we may be alone in the universe after all. I'm not lying. Check it out. I read the article myself. We may be alone in the universe after all, because if there's not trillions of galaxies and maybe just millions or billions of galaxies, then there's statistically less of a chance of there being a habitable planet for life. Now, what does that prove? You've been lied to. That's what that proves once again. But why do I mention these things? I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we're talking about the wonderful works of creation. Your works are wonderful. That is, you can't understand them. When we say wonderful, oh, that's wonderful. We mean, in this context, David means, I can't understand them. They're beyond my pay grade. Wouldn't it have been better if those scientists said, we simply don't know. All we could see was X. This we do know. But they never do that. They say, this we know, and therefore, we think we know this. And that's why they get in trouble all the time. And so, they hypothesize, and they speculate, which is to say they guess, and usually wrong. Okay. He says it this way, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now, do you remember that term, depths of the earth? Didn't that come up a little earlier? Right? It, it was a reference to Sheol, the depths of the earth. It's a classical way of saying 
the place of the spirits, the place of dead spirits. But it's interesting that David says, I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure exactly. It's certainly too wonderful for him and for me but, and for you. But here I do know he's talking about a place where souls exist. Now, in the case of Hades, those souls have departed their bodies and are waiting, either were waiting for the Messiah or are now waiting for judgment, called it Abraham's bosom. But it's interesting that he says his soul was knit together in that same place. Maybe he's just sort of generically referring to that dimension where the soul exists before it's implanted in the body. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? He says it this way again. My frame was not hidden you, hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And so he's conflating or taking these two thoughts uh, of, of your soul being created and your body being created, and he's talking about the depths of the earth, again, a place of spirits, but he's also talking about a mother's womb as well. But he's saying that both are true. Notice, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Now that could mean the body not fully formed in the womb, or it could mean the soul apart from the body. And for this reason, some people believe that souls are created and then they're placed in bodies. Now, listen, again, I'm not, I'm not here to preach some new doctrine. I'm just telling you what I read. The body has a soul. The body has a body. And then we have a spirit. And I think that's very interesting. But what David is making clear to us, and I think we need to remember is that the Lord saw his physical body as it was forming in the womb. The Lord saw his immortal soul as it inhabited his unformed body. And so the Lord has observed him as his very life was being created. And he's observed you as well. And far be it from us not to acknowledge that truth of when life begins and what life truly is. He realizes that the Lord had ordained the entirety of his life before he was even born. Jeremiah knew it. Jeremiah knew that he was called to be the prophet when he was in his mother's womb. You can read that in Jeremiah. I believe it's in chapter 1. What you need to know, what I need to know, what we need to know is what he says here in verse 16. All the days ordained for me, that is, everything my life was going to be or, or would be accomplished through me or in me, were written in your book, that is a way of saying God knows it, before one of them came to be. So let me ask you a question. If you're reading a book and you don't like the ending, or you're watching a movie and you don't like how it resolves, is there anything you can do about it unless you're the filmmaker? No. Now, sometimes you'll get a DVD. Remember those things? I love doing that with technology. Well, sometimes you'll get a DVD, or even more obscurely, a Blu-ray, and you will actually have the option to choose how that movie ends. I've seen this. I've watched a few things on Netflix where you can actually choose the ending. But that's not how this works in life. I think we know that. And sometimes you'll get a director's cut where they change the ending. Or you'll get what they call an alternate ending in the deleted scenes. Listen, listen, listen. It doesn't work that way in life. You and I, we don't get to choose how this thing begins or how it ends. You're here because God placed you here. And God is all-knowing. Say it with me. All-knowing. God is ever-present. Say it with me. Ever-present. And he's all-powerful. All-powerful. And because of this, you can be assured that there are no mistakes She'd never call a child a mistake. She'd never call a person a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Now, you make mistakes. God has factored that into his plans for you. You know, when you train in a particular discipline, whether it's martial arts or athletics, or your trainer, your sensei, your coach, they know you're going to make mistakes. They factor it into your training. They know when they give you a kata, you're never going to get it right on the first go-around. Can you imagine? Of course, a teacher. Some of you are teachers. You know, you're in the classroom. Do you really think your kids are going to memorize every date in American history just because you teach them? No. You accept and know they're going to make mistakes. You're surprised when they get them all right. 
Why do I mention that? Because a good teacher factors in these things. A good sensei or coach or trainer knows you're going to make mistakes. But it never interferes with his ultimate plan. Oh, that's comforting. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's all-powerful. He's able to work your mistakes into his plan for your life. (gasps) I just took a deep breath. Don't worry. I'm at least six feet away from the front row. So here's what I know. I know that God is in control. I know what David is telling me is true. I'm encouraged to know this truth. The Lord has ordained the entirety of our lives before we were born. So can I say it this way? And and someone's going to be offended. If I get sick, I get sick. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Listen, wisdom being wisdom, yes. But just remember that God is in control of your life. If you walk through the waters, you won't be overcome by the floods, Isaiah says, right? You walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Neither will the flame kindle upon you. The truth that Isaiah shares is true today. If you are in the center of God's will, it is the safest place to be. So, David knows that truth. And after having declared that the Lord created him, he then declares that the Lord is constantly thinking about him and is always with him. And that's so wonderful. That's a fantastic truth. Look at verses 17 through 18. This is what we learn. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, or your thoughts about me. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. What a wonderful realization David comes to in recognizing that God is the all-powerful God. You know, that he can sustain life because he creates life as part of the equation. But the rest of it is this, that God doesn't abandon us or just simply sustain us, but he's intimately connected with and concerned about you, such that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for your sins. He loves you that much. He knows, David knows, that the Lord is constantly thinking about him. He considers the Lord's innumerable. That's the point of that idiom. How vast is the sum of them were, and to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Nobody's going to be able to count those grains of sand. You can estimate, but you can't count them. And the Lord has that many thoughts, that is innumerable thoughts about you, and about David, and about me. And those thoughts are considered by David, and should be by us, to be extremely precious. Extremely precious. And he realizes this truth, that the Lord is with him as he sleeps and still with him when he wakes. You know, you're never closer to death, physically speaking, than when you sleep, assuming you're healthy. All the vitals, they go into sleep mode, much like our computers. And you're just a little away from death. You can't move. Your body has this neurological thing. It shuts down your limbs. And wouldn't that be something? Imagine if you were flailing. Sometimes that happens when you're caught sort of between sleep or you have some kind of a condition. But the body is designed, wonderfully designed, to go into sleep mode. But in that place, you are as close to death as you are in any daily given moment. And he says, and I love the way he says it, when I awake, I am still with you. That is, God gets me up in the morning. I'm still here. Can you say, I'm still here? I'm still here. You're still here. That's what David is saying. I'm still here. God is faithful. He's all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful. He's the creator. He's all of these things. And now David comes to this conclusion, and I like this conclusion. Maybe there's something wrong with me. But I like the conclusion he comes to after having recognized who God is. And he says it this way. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What did David have for breakfast? A triune taste of the Almighty God. The all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God, the Creator. When he considered those things, the logical conclusion was to pray for God's justice. 
And that begins to explain to me the feelings I'm having spiritually and emotionally about the world I'm living in, the world I find myself living in, we're all finding ourselves living in. It's not properly described as anger or a hate where you personally hate someone. It's not personal. It's a recognition of the enemies of God and hating everything they stand for, abhorring it. See, I, I hate murder. I hate abortion because it is murder. I hate sin like God hates sin. Why? Because it hurts people. That's why God hates sin, because it hurts us. Oh, is this a hate speech? In a sense, I hate sin. I love people. I love God. I love his people. I love my neighbors myself. But I can't do those things unless I hate sin and the enemies of God. Anybody here going to say you love the devil? No, you don't love the devil. Nobody here loves the devil. You hate the devil because he's God's enemy. And if anybody sat around here and starts saying, I love the devil, oh, we love the devil, we pray for him, yeah, I got to, we're going to have a conference call. You never say that. It'd be ridiculous. Of course, David now asked the Lord to slay the wicked and lead him to everlasting life. Two things need to happen before we enter eternity. And one of them is this. He needs to judge the living. And the other is this. He needs to judge the dead. Judge the living and the dead. Now, you're alive in Christ. You're the living. So you're judged and found righteous. The dead, who are dead to Christ, not dead in Christ, but dead to Christ, and rejected him, they're going to be judged and found wanting. And nobody, not one of us at the judgment seat of God is going to stand up and say, Lord, I think you're being a little too tough on these people. They had a really difficult upbringing. Socioeconomically, they didn't have all the advantages of this group of people. Please, go easy on them. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to say that. You'd be speaking out of turn. You'd be speaking blasphemy. Judgment is coming. It is. Upon all those that find themselves described as properly God's enemies. But God's friends, his children, his sons and daughters, are going to be judged and found righteous in Christ because Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day, and yes, brothers and sisters, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that's the truth David ends with. He hates the wicked. I do too. But let me be careful here. Okay, when I say I hate the wicked, it's I hate the way they think, what they do, what they promote, how they live. But as a human being, as, as a living soul, I want what's best for them. So I can both hate who they are and what they stand for and want to love them into the kingdom of God. It's not, it's not either or. You see, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants everyone to be saved, but everyone is not saved because not all call upon his name. And I want to be careful how I say this because I don't hate people, but I hate the wicked. David hates the wicked. He desires that the Lord would slay the wicked and deliver him from bloodthirsty men. And, and be honest, you do too. You do too. See, I've been praying for the hand of God to deal with this world and maybe even our culture and our nation in this way. I'm okay with it because I hate the enemies of God. I do, in the proper context of what I've said. Yes, we preach the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But if the world rejects his son, they become the enemies of God. And they're deserving of our hatred in the context of what I'm saying, not a personal hatred. A hatred of who they are and what they stand for. And that's what David says here. Oh, if only you would slay the wicked, O oh God. I've been saying that a lot, especially recently. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Isn't that true? Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. They're your enemies. They're my enemies. Very simple. Now, he declares that they speak evil against the Lord. They misuse his name. He declares that he hates those who hate the Lord and rise up against him. He considers those who hate the Lord his enemies. I do as well. But let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 44. 
love your enemies. Pray for them. Those that despitefully use them, you, and, dis- and come after you and say all manner of evil against you, you're supposed to love them. L- l- here's the truth. We should love our personal enemies. We should love those that hate us with the truth. And the truth is, if you're God's enemy, you're my enemy. Have I lost anyone? Separate the feeling from the reality. You should never give yourself over to hatred. The feeling, the personal indignation that you might feel toward these people, no, it should always be overcome with love. Love for that person to preach the truth. But if you preach the truth to someone and continue to preach the truth to someone and they die in their trespasses and sins and appear before the judgment throne of God, guess what? They are considered wicked and God has no other choice but to send them to hell, the lake of fire, where they are judged for eternity and experience hate. That is the wrath of God because God hates sin. Amen? I hope this makes sense to you. I don't want to be accused of being up here telling you, I'm telling you, oh, hate your enemies. No, love your enemies. But I'm going to say something I want you to digest. We should hate with perfect hatred those who have made themselves enemies of God. I'm going to repeat that again. We should hate with perfect hatred those who have made themselves enemies of God. Notwithstanding, we should love our enemies. See, those things they're not opposed to each other. Put it in proper perspective. God is love. God is mercy. He's compassionate. He's long-suffering. He's abounding in mercy. But if those things and the very character and nature of God is rejected, then those individuals deserve our hate the way we hate sin. Even though we would want to love them into the kingdom of God, If they choose to reject God, they become the enemies of God. And I say with David, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I hope you've heard the entirety of what I've said on this subject and not just isolated one phrase. Because if you've heard everything I've shared, you should not have a problem with what I said. If you isolate and take out of context some of what I said today, you should have a problem. You will have a problem. And I hope you don't. I hope this makes sense to you. David asked the Lord then to search his heart and mind. You know, that's the most important thing that we end on here. We have to remember that God knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our thoughts from afar. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a prayer. That's a desire on the part of David. He wants the Lord to search his heart and mind. He wants the Lord to know him completely, his heart, his anxious thoughts. I have anxious thoughts, and so do you. The anxious thoughts in his mind. He wants the Lord to identify any area of his life that may be offensive to God. It's a great prayer to pray. Lord, show me those areas of my life that are offensive to you. Identify them for me, please. And finally, he wants the Lord to lead him in the way that pleases him, the way of everlasting life. Now, this is the truth, brothers and sisters. This is the truth. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The world will not give you the truth. The world is lying to you. The government's lying to you. The media is lying to you. Social media is lying to you. They're all lying to you. Have you realized that already? Everybody's lying to you. So how do you know the truth? Well, thy word is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. You need to be focused on the truth. Here's what we know. Jesus said in John's Gospel in chapter 8, in verse 44, regarding the world of his day that was lying about a lot of things. Remember, ultimately, they convicted and tried Jesus on a lie, on false charges. It was fake news. You belong to the Father, the devil, Jesus said. And you want to carry out your Father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
And yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So, everyone's lying to you. Science is lying to you. We know that. The media is lying to you. Congress is lying to you. Scientific community is lying to you. Do masks really work? I doubt it. Doesn't seem like they do. Do they know what they're doing? Will the vaccine be effective? I don't know. These are the same people that brought you the last election. I don't believe them at all. And you know what I've realized? You tell the truth. You know what they call you? A conspiracy theorist. That's what a person who tells the truth is now. A conspiracy theorist. I'm tired of being lied to. And it's frustrating me. And, I, and then I have a tendency to get angry. And then all of a sudden I remember what I just read from John 8:44. Wait a minute. They're speaking lies. That's the devil's native tongue. It isn't Nancy Pelosi's words. Her mouth may be moving, but it's the devil that's speaking. These individuals that are telling us stuff that clearly isn't true, Dr. Fauci, it's not them. They're speaking the native tongue of the one who's doing the talking. And rather than getting upset at the individuals who have clearly made themselves the enemies of God and therefore they have my hatred, I wish they would repent, but if they don't, well, that's what we know where that ends up. We certainly would love for them to repent. That would be the best thing that could happen. But if they don't, we know what happens. They're doing the talking, but the one speaking through them, through the media, through the world, through politics, all these voices, because truth is being silenced. Why is truth being silenced? Well, it's conspiracy theory. According to those that speak lies. You see, the devil is the one doing the talking. And the church, well, we're so caught up in what he's saying that we're forgetting that we're not supposed to even listen to that. We're just supposed to preach the truth. So what are you going to do? You're angry? I'm angry too. I don't like being lied to about who won an election. I don't like being lied to by the scientific community. I don't like being lied to by Congress. I don't like being lied to by the media. I don't like it at all. In fact, I hate it. And I hate the devil that's doing the talking. Though their lips are moving, it's the devil doing the talking. So what am I going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to storm the castle? Is that what we're going to do? If you listen to that voice, you're listening to the same voice. The devil himself, because he's a murderer. Did you see that? He's the one behind murdering babies in the womb. He's the one behind murdering police officers. He's the one behind murdering people on the left, on the right. He's the one pushing those buttons. If you're listening to that, you're in trouble. You, 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 you believe the lie. So what do we do now? Oh, brothers and sisters, we preach the truth. We serve a God. We serve an almighty God who's creator, who is all-knowing. Say it. He's ever-present. Say it. And he's all-powerful. All-powerful. So we don't need to worry about what the devil says, even if he's speaking through the quote-unquote some of the most powerful people in the world. It doesn't matter. Because you know the God who is truth. You know his word, which is truth. So what do we do with a culture that's speaking for Satan himself? We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We preach the truth, who is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. And by the way, do you think the lies of Satan are more powerful than the truth of God? Don't engage. Violence isn't going to solve this problem. You can talk all day. You can post. You can share until they revoke your account on social media. That's not going to change anything. You and I, we need to preach the truth of the gospel. They say they preach truth to power. We preach a powerful truth. It's very simple. They want to silence us. Why? Because the truth is powerful. It changes lives. It changes worlds. It changes cultures. And instead of preaching the truth, the church is hiding in the basement. 
Why? Because you believe the lie. Don't listen to those voices, brothers and sisters. It's the devil doing the talking. The more you read, the more you listen, the more you consider, the more familiar you become with the devil's native tongue. May I suggest that in the face of lies, you preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, until the Lord calls us home. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You've encouraged us greatly today. And when we stop and think about the truth, we recognize that there's nothing that can conquer the truth of the gospel and the truth of who you are. We've been told that that truth is either hate speech or a conspiracy theory or a myth. But the truth is, it is the truth. Give us the power and the strength to preach the truth in such a way that we change or you change through us this world that is doomed to hell. We ask that you would do this work in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.